Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. end of the day, how we go about those things will really display kind of our belief about who God is. So we are in a really, really kind of cool transition in the Gospel of John. We're into chapter 18 today, and this is the beginning of the end. And most of you, if you've spent any time around the church, you've, you've kind of heard or, or maybe you saw a movie that, that kind of depicted the last Good Friday on, but that's literally where we are. We're at, we're at Good Friday, Jesus is making his way, and at this point is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's just about to be arrested, and he's going to carry it out. And John carries this, this fairly long information, and he, he weaves, inspired by God, he weaves kind of this interesting trial setting situation that... that I believe he's, he's actually trying to do what he's been doing all along, which is display the, the magnitude and the beauty and the, and the glory of God and the, the mistakes, the fallibility, and the, and the patheticness of man at times. And he continually shows those. And even when we see the trial and, the, and, and Peter's denial, some of the stuff we're going to talk about, he kind of sets like this, the, the camera goes to the trial and then goes to Peter and then goes to the trial and then goes to Peter. And, and everything that he's doing in here is, is showing kind of who Jesus was leading up to what he has said from the beginning, what he has built his case for, what he shared Jesus' teachings and, and miracles, all leading to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God, that, that all who believe in him will have life. John has, has been laying this out, writing this down, showing it all the way along, and now we get to the spot where most of us, we hear it and we're like, oh, yeah, 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 I've, I've been to church on Easter. I've heard this story I've, a thousand times. But as we work through the scripture, I just want to encourage you as we, we navigate some of the, the history or some of the, the scenarios that, that are kind of pointed out or these weird situations that seem like, why, why put this right here? I believe God is trying to teach us many things. There's much for us to learn. And obviously, the, the primary thing that we are to learn is that Jesus is our Lord. He's our Savior. That the only way to God is through Him. This is, that is that is, there is no hidden agenda in the Gospel of John other than that. He's very clear with it. He says that in the next chapter. That's why I wrote this. That's the purpose that's happening. But here, at the beginning of the last hours of Jesus' life, the, the hour that all through the Gospel of John is called the hour of glorification, we, we come to the seemingly heartbreaking and, and terrifying scenario that all of us can run to the end and know is not terrible. It's beautiful because we know what God is doing. And so what I want to challenge you and encourage you with is that we're going we're gonna to actually walk through this, all of this, these next two chapters in the next month or so. We're actually going to finish the Gospel of John before Easter, as weird as that sounds. And so I want, to, I want to encourage you not to just rush through everything, but let yourself come fresh to it. Let yourself come to a spot where you could maybe put yourself into the story. What, what, how would you have reacted? What were the things that you were doing? Because it's so easy for us to read this and go, well, obviously, 
like these are the mistakes they're doing. Even, even John in his writing, because he's writing this so much later, he, he kind of tells, and this was to fulfill. And he kind of gives his own narration into it. So he steps out of the story. But there's so much for us to learn in this. And so here we are, the beginning of his last hours. And as we work our way through, we've, we've tried to break it up in a way that would, would help us to kind of focus in on some little aspects that I think are nuggets of truth that, that God would have us in here, but also staying true to the story of um, the history of what happens. You don't get a full picture in, in John. You need the other Gospels to understand entirely what's happening. But I would encourage you guys, if, you, if you're willing, that chapter 18 to, to 21, there's just four chapters, just start reading this every week. Just read and read and read and let the Lord speak to you and read it over and over again and see where he, he focuses you in on different aspects of it. And so Today, instead of, because it's a broken up section of Scripture in a decent chunk, I'm just going to read it instead of us reading it ahead of time like we normally do. And so chapter 18, verse 1, the beginning of the end, right? And this is where it goes. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, talking about essentially all that he had spoken from chapter 13 to 17 that we have just worked our way through. When he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples Entered. Now, this is a garden that Jesus had gone to on a regular basis. We see this all over the Gospels. It's a garden just outside the Eastern Gate. I've been there. If you stand in this garden, you can look over the Kidron Valley, which is a big valley today. It's a lot, a lot more built up with roads and everything, but it's a huge valley on the outside of the Eastern Gate of, of the city. And you can see from the garden, you can see the Temple Mount Wall, the Temple Wall at this time, and you can, you can do it. In their day, it would have been a, a long kind of trail of going along the way across this place. And the Kidron Valley just means dirty, it's blood. This was the valley that, that thousands of rams and sacrifices blood would work its way out of the temple with the water and would fill this valley in the spring when the rain was up. It could be a pretty feisty little, little stream going through here. And that's the valley that they're walking apart. It's important because when you think about this in, in the context of what we're going to see as he makes his way from here to, to, um, to Annas or Caiaphas' house and to, the, to Pilate, and as he works his way around, Jesus in, this, like, in these last hours, I mean, potentially walked up to six miles. He's like, oh, six miles, I could do that. Like, with, like, I'm CrossFit. I can do that in like five minutes, right? But, but remember, it wasn't until, I mean, the only time he walked from this spot was from the Gethsemane to Caiaphas' house or Annas' house. And after that, he was doing the walking after beatings. So it's important for us to recognize that, that John is giving us a picture here as an eyewitness, as someone who experienced this, as someone that saw this. And so he's adding in these nuggets of truth that we just kind of read over, and they, they help you understand the gravity of what's happening. And so here they are, they're walking to the place, and now Judas, verse 2, now Judas who betrayed him, he already betrayed him, John adds this in because, again, he's recounting this story, also knew the place. Why? Because they went there often. This is around Passover, and there were hundreds of thousands of Jews that made their way for Passover. There was a, a rule to, to not leave the city limits. This garden would have been just in it, not outside of going into like Bethlehem or some of the other places that would have made you unclean to take part in the festivities. And so it's right in the outer skirts, away from the crowds, but this place would have been packed with people, packed with people. And he says, um, who betrayed him also knew the place, 
So Jesus often met there with his disciples in verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. In the Greek, this word actually means a specific amount of troops. Most scholars don't believe that all 500 troops were coming with them, but this was a large group of, of trained war war kind of fighters that knew what they were doing that were coming to get Jesus and they're coming with torches and lanterns and, and, and their swords and they're ready to come and they're doing this at night. And that's not, again, John puts that in there to show us. You'll see even when the rooster crows the third time that it's at the dawning of light. John is trying to, to show the, the, the value, the differences of what, what happens in darkness and what happens in light. And as they make their way over there with all of these troops, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, verse 4, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of, of those whom have gave me. I have lost not one. 1712 was most recently when Jesus said that. And so here we have this scene. And again, scholars disagree. What happens to this, this band of soldiers? Some scholars believe that, that Jesus, because he comes out and says, whom do you think? He comes and finds them before they even find him, that he's scared these war warriors, and they all fell and tripped over each other. I, I, I struggle to believe that. They were coming ready for some kind of fight. These guards, there would have been as a much more in this time in Jerusalem because of Passover. Rome would have brought in tons and tons of more soldiers to protect from mob mentality or, or uprisings that could have happened. So these are well-trained individuals. And, and when we read it, we read, I am he. But if you look at your footnote in most of your Bibles, you realize that he doesn't actually say he. He just says, I am. And John has over and over, and he has brought out the seven different I am statements that Jesus has made, declaring that the name of God. And so in this setting, these soldiers did unknowingly what anyone would do had they experienced a, a, a visualization of God. They fell down before God. We see this in Ezekiel. We see anytime anyone experiences the voice of God or the presence of God, all throughout Scripture, the first thing they do is they fall flat on their faces. And what is, what is John doing? We, we don't, again, we, they get up and he says, whom do you seek? Why would these soldiers, many of them Roman, that don't even believe this fall? I think John is, is showing us that um, Jesus is in control. Because even right here, they would have normally, in, a, in an arresting thing, would have taken all of his party with him, the other 11 disciples with him. But Jesus has let these men go. And they listen to him. So, so Jesus is, is setting this spot up where the chief priests the, and the Pharisees are working together as, as, as they try and make something happen using the Roman guards to, and, and the Roman um, citizens to help make what they want to have happen, which is ultimately Jesus dying. But the Sanhedrin, the, the lawyer court, they could not do capital punishment. They had their own system that they could do and that, that the Romans would let them do all kinds of things. But really, the chief priest had to get in there, was placed by the Romans. So a chief priest at this point was, was usually chummy with the Roman citizens and the Roman leadership. 
And so a role that was meant to be a, a facilitator of experiencing God and, and connecting with God had become a political play that let Rome speak into how God's people were supposed to operate. We get from the other Gospels that, that Judas comes to kiss Jesus. And Jesus asks him, says, you, you will betray me with a kiss? And to us, many of us are like, okay, in fact, I was thinking about implementing it, but COVID rules, we can't, so we're not going to do the kissing thing here, guys. It's okay. Um, no, the, uh, many of us are like, what's a kiss? In, in this day, a kiss was a, a, a sign of endearment, of deep relationship, of deep connection, one that only was meant to be done between members of families or, um, or, or even disciples greeting their rabbi was a sign of devotion. And so what Jesus is doing is he's helping Judas see just what he's doing, which is you're trying to betray me with, with a sign of devotion. You're not devoted to me. Even John in this writing, he stops the story of the soldiers coming down to tell him that, hey, Judas is not with us. He's with them. He's standing with the enemies. And so when Jesus says, I am, it, it, it provokes a response that even those who, who don't understand it prostrate themselves before God. And John puts these, these little nuggets in here that are both perplexing but also very powerful. Jesus saying I am is, is just a self-identification to Jesus being who he says he is. The very thing that, that, that John is trying to show us all along, that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father through me. I am the Son of God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Him saying it that way is the very reason why all the chief priests and Pharisees want to kill him. Because he's declaring himself as God, which would be blasphemy in their minds. But what's interesting is that resting band had strong human forces, armed and weapons and well-trained, and there's this Jesus, this carpenter with 11 disciples, three of which that have just been snoozing and can't stay awake, most likely because of grief. And Jesus is encouraging them to pray that do not be tempted and they're kind of, they're exhausted. They've just heard the, the sermon of all sermons in the upper room that we just spent months trying to understand and work through. And they hear Jesus then praying for the very things, and they know what's coming. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, there's a bunch of strong, armed men. But what we see here is that the person being arrested is, is clearly represented as being in charge. Isn't that interesting? He comes out and says, whom do you seek? Before they can come in and try and embrace him or, or lock his arms together. He says, let these men go. They don't take any of them. And then Peter in verse 10, I love this because Peter, oh, Peter, he's so much like all of us. <laughs> then Simon Peter having a sword, which, by the way, this word sword is, is probably like a dagger, okay? So like it's a little one, okay? <laughs> Drew it out and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. So I was trying to figure out like how he did that. That's a weird, like, I mean, what you, have you ever thought about like, try cutting off someone's ear with a little dagger? Like, don't do that. But you get what I'm saying? Like, like picture, like, it's not even, I mean, was he left-handed? Maybe he was left-handed. Anyways, whatever. Just seems crazy, right? Cuts his right off ear. The servant's name was Malchus. This is the only text that we get. Of all the other gospels, they don't name Peter, but John does. And we don't get the name of the servant, but John does. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. 
Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then he heals Malchus's ear, picks it up, puts it back on. It's Jesus' last miracle before the cross. What could Peter's puny sword do against a force of a Roman detachment led by a commander of normally a thousand soldiers? What could his one little dagger do with all of those people? Nothing. And many people want to kind of come to this text and be like, yeah, this is, this is where we talk about whether we should or shouldn't fight back. I'm not even going to go there. Um, but ultimately, what we do see out of this scenario is that in both Matthew and in um, Luke, we see that, that, that both the authors kind of, they tell a story, they give, they give Peter a different rebuke. In this one, it's, shall I not drink the cup? The cup that he was literally praying in the garden, which we don't get in John. You get in the other gospels where he's praying and Luke, his, his sweat turns, turns to blood. And he's literally asking the Lord if there's another way for him to not drink the cup, the cup of God's wrath. He's saying, shall I not drink this cup? He's already said this to Peter. When Peter says, I will go anywhere, he says, you can't drink the cup that I'm about to drink. In Matthew, he's like, look, if I wanted to defend myself, legions of angels, thousands upon thousands of angels could defend me right now. He even tells the pilot, he's like, if, if, if this was my... If this is my kingdom, this is my people, then they'd be fighting right now, but that's not it. My kingdom's coming. What are we seeing here? Is we're seeing that the king was not being captured, but that he was giving himself over to the enemies. And I think it's important for us to see this, that Jesus is not, is not tripping up or not knowing it. He literally is telling the disciples while teaching them, my hour's here, my hour's here, my hour's here. He told him all the way back before he was in Jerusalem and faced Jerusalem on the, on the beautiful hilltop experience of him tran- transfiguring and faces himself to Jerusalem says, I must go this way. He knows. He knows what's going to happen. In fact, from the very beginning Jesus set on earth, he knew what his role and his purpose was. Even Jesus healing the ear of Malchus is a servant of the Roman guard, his enemy. Is nothing really big. And maybe Jesus heals him to kind of keep from causing some issues for Peter and the other disciples. Or maybe just this was just another form of God's grace through Jesus. Some would say that Malchus wouldn't have been able to be a soldier if he was maimed like that. That's possible too. But again, um, Jesus heals him, his enemy, who's capturing him, who very well could have had, if he was further, far enough forward, could have had his hands on Jesus. One scholar says it this way. He says, only in John do you find that the ear cutter is Peter, but that action is certainly not out of line with his blundering style elsewhere. Only in John do you also discover that the person who was attacked is Malchus, but both Matthew and Luke also indicate that the man was the servant of the high priest. Luke, who seems to have some interest in physical aspects of people, notes along with John that it was the right ear that was severed. Luke also adds with the rebuke of Peter that Jesus restored the ear. Matthew with his typical interest in angelic and spiritual forces, includes a different focus to Jesus' rebuke by informing Peter that he could counter the arrest with 12 legions of, of angels, if that was his will. Clearly, the focus of the three rebukes, Mark does not have the story, is different in each gospel, but the rebuke is similar in each gospel. Although each evangelist chooses an aspect of rebuke that is in conformity with, to his own interests in his own particular way of testifying of the basic concern of that, we see in all of them that, that bloodshed is not the mission of Jesus. That's ultimately what Jesus is coming to. He said, look, uh, this, is, this is not my way. This is not how I'm going to do this. 
I'm not going to fight this way. And, and the disciples missed this the whole time. And so Jesus has been arrested, and we, we learn from this. It jumps into him being with Annas and Caiaphas. We're going to actually talk about them a little bit more next week. Um, but then we, we know that, that Jesus is being led by the, led by the, the soldiers and the, the soldiers of both the Roman soldiers and the, Roman, the soldiers of the chief priests, and they're being led to this high priest's house. We know that, and, and he's going. And all we know from the Gospels is that two individuals follow we got a, 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 the, another disciple or other disciple, unnamed, and Peter. And it, it seems like what we pick up is that Peter's like, he's not following closely. He's like hiding and like trying to get there, right? He's, he's trying to chase after him and see what's going to happen. And so he's making his way to, to follow them. And Peter ends up in, in the, the, the courtyard of the high priest. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky because how does Peter... And the other disciple, who I believe is most likely the, uh, the, the John that wrote this, it makes the most sense, but people would argue, well, how could a Galilean fisherman have close contact with the, with the high priest? Well, if you remember, John and his brother James, their dad owned a fishing boat, so they were a little bit more wealthy. Um, also, um, there's no reason to not believe that there was some connection with many of the followers, like Nicodemus and and um, Joseph of Arimathea, we see kind of some rich people and influence in there. And either way, jo- John, most likely John, knew his way in. So verse 15, it picks up. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, so since most likely John was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So the picture is this, uh, this disciple's close to the army, headed over. He's walking with them, and Peter's kind of in the shadows <laughs> chasing behind. But Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl, a girl that was guarding the the, the door, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? The way she's asking this expects a no answer. Like, you aren't one of these disciples, right? Like, no, of course not. And Jesus said to him, I'm not. Now, the servant girl and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming themselves. Now, this sets up the scene that's really important for us to make the connection. First off, there's only two places that this style of fire is used. This word for fire is used in the New Testament, here and in chapter 21. It's not used anywhere else. And it's really important for us to see that I believe that that John is, and we'll get there in chapter 21, but I believe that John is is helping us connect a big, huge, horrific mistake in Peter's life tied back to another fire where redemption can happen. It's really beautiful, and we'll get there in a second. But we also have to recognize it's it's a fire, and it's night. It's most like spring time frame. So this whole thing is happening illegally. That's, that's, I think that's important. We'll talk about that some next week. Uh, this, this entire thing isn't supposed to be happening. And there were exceptions for like extreme situations to, to do certain things or certain hearings at night, but this is not the way it's supposed to happen. And in the middle of all this, we go through Jesus facing Annas and Caiaphas, and then Jesus questioned by the high priest, and then, and then Jesus again before Pilate. And in between each of these things, we pop back to the scene of Peter. And I think it's really interesting because Peter had argued with Jesus. 
Even though he warned him that he would deny his master, Peter argued with him. Peter slept when he should have been awake praying. He talked when he should have listened. He, he imitated the very enemies who came to arrest Jesus. Peter would discover that the sword of the Spirit is the weapon God's servants use for fighting their spiritual battles. And he would use that sword at Pentecost, and 3,000 people would come to faith. But Peter, over and over and over again, makes these just ridiculous mistakes. And what seems like, if you're watching the movie or seeing the story unfold, Peter just seems like the secondary thing. Like, why do we keep coming back to Peter? Why not just stay in the courtroom? Let us just hear what's happening with Jesus. And you see Jesus denying all the things. He's, he's, he's speaking only truth. And then it pans out to Peter, who's lying. Shows Jesus running in the truth, standing boldly and courageously in the truth, and Peter cowardly running from truth. And we could even give Peter an out on this first one. Like, he just wanted to get into the courtyard. He wanted to be close. So maybe he just did a quick little, like, this is one of those, like, it's just a little white lie so that I can get in, and he would, like, stand more boldly. But we see as it goes on, Peter doesn't do that. In fact, down in, in verse 25, it says, now Simon Peter was standing warming himself, so he's still standing there. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once, so between 3 to 5 a.m. this time of year, at once the rooster crowed. Now this scene, John, again, I think he's, he's, trying, to, he's trying to set up for us an understanding of, of the, the amazing um, strength and 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 powerful, by weaving these denials, like Peter's denial among the, the interrogations, he's making this theological point that John, like, dramatically contrasts Jesus standing up to his questioners and denying nothing, while Peter cowers and denies everything. He's doing that. We, we know from the other Gospels that Peter, in, in, his, in his, his questioning, Peter did not... Um, he didn't just say no, he actually calls a curse upon himself, which is essentially what Peter's doing by the last time he's doing it. And again, Peter's afraid because now he's, he's been outed as the guy that pulled the dagger on the, the soldier just a few minutes ago, and, and there's, there's people around him that could have their way with them, and he he's, he knows that that's, that's what happened. But the last one, he literally calls an oath, basically saying, if I'm lying, if I'm lying, then, then the, the consequence the, the, the discipline, the punishment of this lie rest on my shoulders. And what's funny about that is, G, is Peter has no idea that that's not even something he can claim because of what Jesus is doing. Peter doesn't, it's really important for us this, Peter doesn't deny that Jesus is God. He just denies he's a part of his life in this way. He says, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm out. And, and Peter makes his mistakes, but again, as you'll see as we move on, he repents. In fact, if you look at the kind of the story, again, John is always pulling these polarizations. If you look at what happens with Judas, Judas confesses what he's done is wrong and goes and hangs himself. Peter doesn't even confess at moment. He just runs at first. But when he finally comes to, he goes back to his brothers and ultimately back to Jesus in repentance. And so you always have these contrasts that John is weaving through the story here. In spite of Peter's brashness and self-confidence, he failed Jesus. And as such, his story is a warning to all of us who claim self-confidently that we would follow Jesus wherever he leads them. 
This is one of the reasons why I believe in the validity of Scripture. If we're trying to make a case for like, this is the way to do it, you should just leave this bit out about Peter. He looks like pathetic in that moment, but if we're honest, so do we. Like our attempts to follow the Lord on our own strength are not anything that we can do apart from him. Luke tells us that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. It's out of Luke twenty two sixty one, right after he denied that last one. Picture of seeing the courtyard, the big window with no windows, obviously, but and into the, the, the proceedings that are happening. Jesus' hands bound, you know, his, his legs bound, him being questioned and being mocked by these men. And it says that he had somehow locked eyes with Peter right at that moment. Peter had been a witness of Christ's suffering. In fact, he says that in 1 Peter 5.1. I saw, I saw it. And Peter, at this moment, knew his own denials added to that suffering. Peter knew at this moment that he saw the suffering that would happen and then saw the suffering that came from that. And I guarantee, and we'll talk about this moment when we get to Peter in, in chapter 21, but I guarantee that Peter was wrestling internally with his last interaction with his Lord before he was crucified. Peter failed at this stage of his discipleship, but that fact helps us as failures to realize that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be perfect to be followers of Jesus or to be accepted by God. And that reality ought to help us find acceptance when, like Peter, we will be alerted to our failures time and time again. See, this, this story shows us a, a number of really, really beautiful things. It shows us that, that, um, that this isn't the end of the story for Peter, for us, for really anyone that wants to, that wants to be in life with Jesus. Peter did, but doesn't end only as the guy that denied Jesus. That's not the end of his story. And just like in your own life, I don't think God identifies you by your worst days. If you are in Christ, he calls you his child. You're identified not by your failings or not by the hardships that you're going through right now, but by the work he has completed on the cross. And this is why I started. Where do we go when things all go wrong? Like, honestly, all 12 of the disciples fail Jesus. Judas betrays ahead of time. The other 11 run. They flee. They try and save themselves. But God doesn't identify any of them. In fact, all of those men who present themselves as cowards end as martyrs. So it's important for us to remember that that our worst days are not what define us. Our biggest failures are not what define us. I've said this in the past, and I understand that this is dangerous, but I feel like Peter's denial of Jesus is almost worse than Judas's. I know what history says, and I know what Scripture says, but to say it so boldly, to do that so emphatically, and yet Peter's someone who stands up a short while after this, and 3,000 people come to faith him. He's, you murdered him, and they're all like, yeah, right, all right, let's go. We want to be followers of Jesus. He has a plan. He's at work. And right now, some of you in this room, you're like, I can't even picture how God would even try and bring something of a semblance of good out of the scenario in front of me. 
everything is crumbling, everything is falling apart, and I just keep seeing the mistakes I'm making, so then I wallow in shame more, and I find myself just, just retreating, retreating, retreating into darkness like every one of these disciples did. But he's not just standing there, standing by while evil is seemingly winning. I think it's important for us to remember, I want to just finish today with just two scriptures, a little bit longer chunks of scripture. First off, I think when we look at our lives and we realize that the, 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 the turmoil, the tribulations, the trials, whatever it is, our sinfulness, the sinfulness of others that is just spilling out all over us, when we look at that and we start, start doubting like, oh my goodness, how in the world is God even in control of this? I think we need to be reminded of a, a few a hundreds of years before this setting Isaiah says, one that we all know very well in 53, he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his living or his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his land. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is why I think the author of Hebrews can say for the joy that was set before him at the cross. Because Jesus wasn't hiding in a bush <laughs> going, I hope they don't find me. He stood out in front of him and said, whom do you seek? And then in his strength as our Messiah, our King, our God, don't touch one of them. And they didn't. They listened. And he walked willingly with his hands tied, following a religious system that they were completely denying, illegally going to do what they're doing. And Jesus did it. Because why? Because Jesus knew the plan all along. And guys, it would be foolish for us to believe that God doesn't know the plan all along for our own life. So while you might be experiencing deep hurt, painful regret of choices made, this story shows us that the end of the story is not in darkness and sadness. The sun rises and our son, King Jesus, our, our, we are, who are our co-heirs, rises and we can walk in redemption despite the darkness that so tries to entangle us. John's, let's go says it this way, John's theological message is that despite the darkness of the hour, this is in fact the hour of glory. Jesus will not be crucified. He will be lifted up. He is not a victim, but a king assuming his throne. 
transforming death into a passage, a return, a celebration of his resumption of heavenly position. And no matter what the world may think about or do to this glory, this regal glory cannot, will not, and never will be suppressed. So we know that. Another verse I want to end with, it's really long, I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to read a chunk of it. It's Romans 8, it says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, and then there's this beautiful chunk in the middle that I'm going to skip over, so I encourage you, please go read it. Down in verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Hear this, this is so important. Because right now, the pain and the trauma and the difficulty you're going in your life right now, you might be asking, where is my Lord? Where is his love? And if you take this, and you remember Isaiah hundreds of years before, God said everything that's going to happen, and it happened exactly like that. And hear this. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or sin or pandemic, or social media, or whatever else is going on in our life, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, just so you guys know, nor things to come is what we're in, Okay? nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation. Just so you guys know, all creation is all creation, okay? We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our love, Lord. You cannot be loved more. You will not experience any more love than you have already experienced in Jesus Christ. Peter's mistakes display an important message about the frailty of our discipleship and the sovereign knowledge and sustaining power of God. So take heart. It's not the end. Your pain, your troubles, your sufferings, your sins, they're not the end. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Not because you're awesome. Not because you just happen to figure out the formula of your theology and everything else at work. No, because you are in Christ who walked right out of that grave and stood and took his place as rightful king. So when things look bleak, what do you do? When everything else looks like it's making, isn't making sense, what do you do when it all goes wrong? It might just need to be a shift of our thinking, a shift of our looking to maybe look a little bit further out. At some point, the 11 disciples had to do that. <laughs> they all got together. At some point, they had to stop looking here and, and, and lift their head up and look a little bit further out. And it took the Holy Spirit and Jesus coming back to really help them do that. But that's something we have today. So don't, don't get so focused in on your trials right now. They, they're serious, they're hard, they're taking energy. I, I, I know that. I'm not saying just ignore them and pretend like they're not there. But, but make sure your gaze gets lifted on to further out. Because when, when I lift my gaze beyond my struggles and issues and strife and, and wrestling, I see the very truth that Jesus is coming again. That's what takes 
cowards and makes them martyrs. Scott says it this way. He says, John's story says that God will accomplish his purposes, revealing his glory despite what is happening in the world. No human being can stop it. No person is capable of stifling the glory of God. If God intends for that glory to be shown, God is in control of history. Even this hostile, seemingly darkened chapter of history that offers little hope, he is sovereign in places like this Passover during this particular year in Jerusalem. If he can manifest glory and accomplish his purposes, when to the observer, everything seems like defeat and disaster, our history can be no different. If God could transform this hour with glory, so too he can transform any of our hours for glory. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going we're to profess in spite of our, our darkest hours or our darkest days that his grace is still sufficient for us. And then in a moment, we're going to take communion. There's a, some up here in the back. I would encourage you to go grab it. But this is an opportunity for us to not only look at him for what he has done or accomplished for us, but for us to look further out to look what he will do in his second coming, to focus on the fact that this isn't it for us. Your story right now, as painful as it is, as harsh as the writings are on the page of your own life, the regret and the pain and all those things is not the end of the story. In Christ, he is still working, accomplishing not only the beginning, the authorship of our faith, but the perfection, the completion of it. So press back into him and pray. God, thank you for reminding me just how powerful you are. How when everything seems lost, I'm baffled by how everything happened in these last days. It's just perplexing how so many people so quickly could make so many pathetically horrible decisions. Yet when I look at that, I see you weaving your sovereign will to accomplish that which you intended to accomplish all along. The promise that you made all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve coming to fruition. And I get to walk this day as a part of your story of accomplishing, of you accomplishing what you're doing for your people, for your glory. And so God, I pray for the individuals in the room right now that are, um, the outlook is bleak. It feels a lot like an arrest and an illegal trial and an utter denial. God, I pray that you would draw them to you. You'd remind them that this isn't it for them, that there's more, that even if everything else around them may fall apart, nothing will separate them from you and your love. And God, for those of us that, that come to this story excited about the end, I pray that you would um, help us to sit in the story knowing that um, there was not a single smile on any of the disciples' faces this night. And so, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for reminding us of people like Peter who accomplished so much for your kingdom and made so many mistakes. It gives me hope for myself, Lord. We thank you for all you're doing, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word 
has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God.